This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. There is violence against women in this episode. Please take care where and when you listen. As strange as this story may seem, this is a work of nonfiction with no invented dialogue. Every reenactment you hear comes from government files, archives, diaries, letters, newspaper articles, books, or trial testimony. It's Friday night, October 19, 1921. At George Remus's bootlegging headquarters, Death Valley Farm, a hired hand named Johnny Garum answers the phone. Hello? Remus himself is calling. Johnny. I got some friends coming into town. They're going to need some booze. I need you to put a few bottles away for them. Can you do that for me? Sorry, boss, but I I can't do it. There's not a drop in the place. And none coming in before Monday. The next day, while he's relaxing with his wife Imogene, Remus's phone rings. It's a prohibition agent who was already on the bootlegger's payroll. He passes along a tip that a new prohibition agent has come to Cincinnati but not a local. He's from another state and he's not on Remus's payroll. But Remus isn't worried about an immediate raid. Johnny had told him there wasn't a drop of whiskey on the whole farm. The next morning, Sunday, Johnny and Remus's right-hand man, George Connors, decide to get an early start on the week's bootlegging business. They drive into the yard at Death Valley Farm and see two men they don't know. One of them speaks to Connors, slurring his words like he's drunk. Do you want anything? Any what? Any liquor. Connors grows suspicious. These men do not seem like legitimate customers. We're not looking for any liquor. The drunk wobbles closer and throws his arm around Connors. Well, have you got any to sell? We're not in the liquor business. We're not interested in it. And if you don't take your hands off of me, I'll give you a crack in the jaw. The stranger opens his coat and flashes a badge. We're prohibition officers. Hands behind your back. 
the agents seized thousands of gallons of wine and liquor, a stockpile of firearms, and incriminating record books. Connors, Garam, and three other Remus employees are arrested for violating the Volstead Act. And a few days later, Remus himself is behind bars. Johnny had lied to Remus, and the forces against the bootlegger had converged. I'm Abbott Kaler, and this is Remus, the Mad Bootleg King. The arrest didn't slow down Remus's business one bit. Within two weeks, he and his men were out on bail and acting like the raid had never happened. Customers, fearful that their supply would be cut off, had driven the price of Remus's whiskey up by nearly 50%. Even the prospect of a trial didn't scare Remus. He believed that the trial would result in an easy acquittal, if it happened at all. He had regularly paid bribes to Jess Smith, aide to U.S. Attorney General Harry Dougherty, and Smith was Remus's insurance against a conviction. Back in their Price Hill mansion, George and Imogene were sitting on top of the world. Their renovations were finally complete, all $750,000 worth. That's over 12 million in today's money. The finished house had 31 rooms, each one reflecting George and Imogene's garish tastes. The pool table in the billiard room stood on carved claw feet the size of Remus's head. Marble figures of cherubs and warriors and goddesses posed atop every fireplace mantle. Chandeliers splayed across the ceilings like customized constellations. A solid gold piano illuminated the parlor. Their piece de resistance was a Greco-Roman indoor swimming pool, almost 10,000 square feet, housed in a separate backyard building. The pool was heated, an incredible luxury for the time. Carved marble furniture and statues depicting ancient Greek swimmers surrounded the water. At one end stood a variety of Turkish and Swedish baths, and even electric baths, an early version of a tanning bed, heated by incandescent electric lights. They were said to make the user frisky. Remus named it the Imogene Bass, an homage to her beauty. A man's home is his castle, you know? You really got a castle, haven't I? But in Remus's eyes, the most beautiful thing in the house was Imogene herself. She was the kind of woman that made you think of Turkish Arams, Oriental dances, and Cleopatra, as one of his friends described her. Her every glance seemed like a caress. Although she was voluptuous to the point of stoutness, there was something feline in her every movement. And Remus wanted nothing more than to show her off, and the house she had inspired, to Cincinnati's finest. To that end, Remus and Imogene planned the New Year's Eve bash like nothing the city had ever seen. Imogene oversaw the design of the invitations, printed on tea-colored paper tied with a red ribbon. They read, Our New Year's greeting. Dive to health, swim to wealth, float on happiness, 1921 and 22. They also included an image of a mother holding a baby, which, considering the level of debauchery planned for this party, seemed an odd choice. Six maids addressed and mailed the invitations to journalists, politicians, captains of industry, and Cincinnati's social elite, family names that were internationally famous the clan of former President William Howard Taft, the winemaking real estate magnates, the Longworths, and the pig iron industrialist Sintons worth half a billion dollars. 
Remus and Imogene hoped that this party would be their entree into Cincinnati society. The most coveted invitation in the city, and even the country. The guests began arriving in the early evening, some from as far away as San Francisco. The honeyed notes of a live string orchestra wafted throughout the house. Orchids perfumed the air. Servers looped through, chattering couples, offering Remus's best whiskey and champagne and gin and vodka and beer. There was a rumor that Remus had even filled his pool with whiskey. Models attired in Grecian gowns and towering turbans served hors d'oeuvres from silver platters. Remus circulated through the rooms, lighting the cigars of his guests with flaming hundred-dollar bills. Whenever Imogene passed by, Remus drew her close and ran his thick fingers through her carefully styled hair, adorned with jeweled pins. He bragged, And I've got Imogene, the truest and squarest and prettiest wife a man ever had. When the dinner hour arrived, one guest found a thousand-dollar bill tucked beneath his plate, waved it in the air, and lo and behold, the same party favor had been planted for each reveler. Still, Remus wasn't finished. Each man at the party received a diamond stick pin and a gold watch engraved with the letter R and the words, from Mr. and Mrs. George Remus, 1922. The trinkets thrilled the men and disappointed the women. But when the ladies' moment came, Remus became a Roaring Twenties version of Oprah Winfrey. He delivered his last surprise, sets of keys, then led them to the front door and swung it open. Down the long driveway, past the stone lions and iron gates, was a string of brand new 1922 sedans. There was one for every woman at the party. All this excess in an era when the average salary was $1,200 per year. It was time now for the evening's highlight. Remus led them all to the pool house for his big announcement. Swimming is my hobby. I have dreamed of having my own pool since I was a boy. Then he ushered his guests inside and showed them how he'd made his dream come true. In the Imogene Bass, aquatic nymphs performed synchronized routines underwater, their toes rising and disappearing in unison. At the stroke of midnight, young Ruth Remus, dressed in a sheer gown, descended the diving board and yelled, A happy new year. Then Ruth plunged in. Imogene, not to be outdone, mounted the diving board in a daring swimsuit. She slowly removed the diamonds, rubies, and emeralds from her hair, and then gracefully dove into the pool. Go ahead, everyone. Have a swim. Remus encouraged his guests to jump in, and they obliged, soaking their tuxes and gowns, and Remus followed in full tuxedo, his first swim in his own pool. After he towed off, he strolled around the pool house, bidding goodnight to each guest, and his heart began to sink. None of the paragons of Cincinnati society, neither the Tafts, nor the Longworths, nor the Sintons, had shown up. Remus realized that no matter how extravagant his home or gifts, no matter how urgently he wished to be one of them, his world would never align with theirs. So he retreated to the mansion. He could hear the laughter and clinking glasses of the remaining guests, but for Remus, the party was over. He retired to his library, where he sat down with the biography of Abraham Lincoln, all alone as the noise faded and the sun rose on 1922. Remus's legendary parties are one of the reasons he reportedly inspired author F. Scott Fitzgerald to create The Great Gatsby. There is no hard evidence that Remus and Fitzgerald ever met, 
but Fitzgerald certainly knew who Remus was when he was writing Gatsby. By that time, the entire world knew who Remus was. And the similarities between the two men are conspicuous. Both owned a string of pharmacies and opulent mansions. Both loved mysterious women and lavish parties. Most of all, both longed to inhabit a world that did not seem willing to welcome them, causing a pervasive sense of melancholy that lasted throughout their lives. The raid on Death Valley Farm was Mabel Willenbrandt's first step into prohibition enforcement, and it was a big one. But rounding up the field agents to do it had been troublesome. The Bureau of Investigation, the precursor to the FBI, had a prohibition unit that included about 1,500 field agents, and Mabel wasn't sure she could trust most of them. She had good reason. Qualifications to become a field agent were virtually non-existent. Most of the force was ex-policemen, bailiffs, and deputy sheriffs working for a meager starting salary of $1,200 per year. Taking bribes from bootleggers, they could make at least 10 times that. Already, the chief federal prohibition agent for Cincinnati was earning a better salary by taking hush money from Remus. Even a criminal record couldn't stop somebody from becoming a prohibition agent. One aspiring recruit, convicted of armed robbery and murder, was still doing time in an upstate New York prison when he received his badge. Mabel wrote about the problem in her journal. The dominant reality is that the whole problem is one of getting the right men into places of power in enforcement. Men of creative thought, of courage, those not slaves to political ambition. And by men, I also mean women. Lots of them. But the urgency of the Remus problem left no time for a recruiting drive. Willenbrandt had no choice but to identify and organize the best agents from the ones she already had. Her first choice for the Cincinnati investigation was a 30-year-old special agent named Franklin L. Dodge. He was patently handsome, with sleek, dark hair and a deeply cleft chin. Dodge also had a distinguished pedigree. His father was a prominent Democrat in Michigan, connections throughout the state and federal government. By the time Willenbrandt arrived on the scene, Dodge was already considered a rising star in the Bureau of Investigation. The Remus Whiskey Ring would be both Willenbrandt's and Dodge's first foray into prohibition. She dispatched Dodge to Cincinnati, and she hoped the agent would not disappoint. After the raid on Death Valley, Dodge and more of Willenbrandt's handpicked agents, nicknamed the Mabel Men, were hard at work preparing for Remus's trial. She was working on indictments against more of Remus's men, and agents on the ground in Cincinnati sent her a stream of damning information. The agents confirmed that 180,000 cases of liquor had been withdrawn from the Squibbs distillery using the federal permits that Remus was buying from Jess Smith. And all of that whiskey had been shipped to recipients who didn't actually exist. It was proof positive that Remus was shipping all of his medicinal whiskey to himself. One fact in particular gave Willenbrandt pause. The agents had recruited the Death Valley night watchman, Elijah Hubbard, as an informant. And then he turned up dead. Franklin Dodge visited Hubbard's wife, Mary. She told him that her husband had been poisoned to prevent him from testifying at the trial. He was killed she told Dodge, for knowing too much. Willenbrandt knew Mary Hubbard was a critical witness and one who needed protection, 
so she headed to Cincinnati herself. She personally escorted Hubbard to testify before the federal grand jury. And sure enough, on the strength of Hubbard's testimony, the grand jury returned nine indictments against Remus and his co-defendants, in addition to felony charges for violating prohibition laws and internal revenue statutes Remus was accused of a misdemeanor, maintaining a, quote, nuisance at Death Valley Farm. The trial would begin in May of 1922 in U.S. District Court in Cincinnati with Hubbard as the government's star witness. Willem Brandt left her witness in Franklin Dodge's capable hands and told him to keep an eye on Remus. Remus could not spend a single moment out of Dodge's view. Day and night, Dodge parked his sedan outside the mansion, watching Remus and Imogene come and go. Every time Remus peered from his window or stepped out his door, the agent was there, silent and unmoving. Remus appeared unworried. He boasted that his trial would be a walk in the park. I've got everyone and his brother in Washington on my payroll. This trial will take care of itself. He felt so confident that his Washington connections would protect him that he even made threats. If I'm crowded too far, I will tear the heart out of Washington. But Dodge didn't scare easily. He kept spying on the Remuses, recording every moment they made until the trial began. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With the crack of his gavel, Judge John Peck called the trial to order. The prosecution called its star witness, Mary Hubbard, to the stand. 
She explained her deceased husband's duties at Death Valley, described the cars that arrived from across the country, and named the labels on the cases of whiskey. She walked along the line of defendants and identified familiar faces. When the prosecution rested, spectators whispered to each other, would George Remus testify now? Would he testify at all? He didn't. Remus figured there was no point. Jess Smith had repeatedly assured him there would be no conviction. Within two hours, the jury reached a decision. Remus and his co-defendants sat in silence as the foreman handed the sealed verdict to the court clerk. George Remus, guilty, he said and paused. One by one, he read the other names, each followed by the word guilty. When he finished the list, Judge Peck asked the defendants to step forward. Then he looked Remus in the eye. George Remus, have you anything to say? In that moment, Remus did not feel like himself, and consequently, he failed to act like himself. He did not unfurl a long soliloquy of esoteric words, or shout, or weep, or tear at his hair, or refer to himself in the third person. Instead, he just swallowed and whispered, I have nothing. Judge Peck gave him the maximum penalty, two years at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta and a $10,000 fine. For the misdemeanor charge of maintaining a nuisance at Death Valley, he received an additional year in the Miami County Jail in Troy, Ohio. One hour later, Imogene arrived at the clerk's office in a bold red dress to sign the bonds for her husband and his co-defendants. They would all be free until their sentences began, but Remus had no intention of going to prison at all. His mind spun a web of plans. He ordered his lawyers to start work on his own appeal. He called Jess Smith and demanded to meet him immediately in Washington. Smith had promised that there would be no conviction. Now Remus needed Smith to deliver on his second promise, that the bootlegger would never spend a day behind bars. Remus wasted no time on pleasantries. The conviction is there. We are likely to go to prison if the Court of Appeals don't reverse the case. What assistance can you give? It doesn't make any difference if the Court of Appeals affirms it. I'll get you out of it. Remus remains skeptical. The Court of Appeals will undoubtedly reverse the decision of the lower court. How do you know that? On account of my friendship with the General. Remus considered this. He knew there was talk both in Washington and in Ohio, that Attorney General Harry Dougherty was a partner in the circle. To counteract those rumors, Dougherty had to allow Willembrandt and the federal prosecutors in Cincinnati to pursue his case. After his trial, Remus thought, maybe Dougherty would be freer to call in favors, discreetly exercising the power of his office. Smith waited. Remus opened his wallet and counted off $20,000 bills, tucking the wad into Smith's waiting hand. Remus returned to his hotel suite. He worried that his money would never be enough. All Remus could do that summer was wait for his lawyers to prepare his appeal. Imogene did her best to distract him and suggested a trip to Chicago. He agreed, and she, Remus, and Ruth packed their bags and took off in a limousine with their driver at the wheel. Ruth sat shotgun and Remus climbed with Imogene into the back. The drive was unsettling. It seemed they crossed a railroad track every few minutes, which made Imogene nervous. 
She asked the driver to slow down, and then asked again, pleading now, palms pressed to her cheeks. Remus grew impatient. He did not want to hear another word of complaint. They bickered incessantly. Finally, he'd had enough. He shoved Imogene toward the car door. Stop the car. Get out. Imogene obeyed. Then Remus got out, opened the driver's door, and told him to move over. The driver forced Ruth out of her seat. Remus screeched off a short way down the road, leaving his wife and stepdaughter behind. The car hurtled along so fast he lost control until he thrust his feet against the brake. The car whined into submission. He allowed Imogene and Ruth to approach. He joined Imogene in the back seat and motioned for Ruth to return to the front. The driver took off again, slowly this time, and they headed west in silence. Ruth never forgot the ominous events of that summer, including the night it all came to a head. On this night, the family was at home. Remus pulled Imogene aside for a talk. He told her that he wanted to be the official owner of their home, to alter the deed to include his name. She refused. It was her wedding gift. It belonged to her. From her room, Ruth heard a terrible, terrible scream, and she ran toward the sound. Remus passed her in the hall, saying nothing. She found her mother on the bed, a thin ribbon of blood snaking from her nose. Despite his conviction, Remus wanted to stay in the liquor business. His various distilleries across the country still bulged with inventory, and he was desperate to sell these reserves. He got a tip about the Jack Daniels distillery in St. Louis, Missouri. He could purchase it for a reasonable sum, and its distance from Cincinnati and Willebrand's Mableman was an added bonus. But first, as usual, Remus consulted with Imogene. After their tumultuous summer, they had reconciled, as they always did. Imogene heard the details of the Jack Daniels deal, and she decided to make a personal investment of $28,000. They would be in this together. Remus plotted exactly how the whiskey could be removed from the St. Louis distillery without being noticed. He would space out his withdrawals over an entire year. He confided to a friend. One must be patient in these matters. Thinking so far into the future comforted Remus, as if the possibility of prison had ceased to exist, and the rest of his life stretched before him, sweeping and unblemished. He decided to check in with Jess Smith about protection payments one last time but he never got the chance. At 6.30 in the morning on May 29, 1923, Jess Smith knelt by the wastebasket in his bedroom. He placed his head above the opening like he would soon vomit. Throughout the previous year, he had taken hundreds of bribes and made hundreds of promises he could not keep. The stress was taking a toll. He was only 51 years old, but his body was failing him. His best and truest friend, the Attorney General Harry Dougherty, suggested that he check himself into a hospital. Smith agreed, but then changed his mind. He wanted to go golfing instead. The following afternoon, Smith, Dougherty, and one of his assistants, Warren Martin, met for a round of golf. Dougherty was relieved to see Smith laughing and joking, a glimpse of his old self peeking through. At sundown, Dougherty said goodbye and went to the White House, where he planned to stay overnight. Warren and Smith went back to the hotel, and Smith closed his bedroom door at 9 p.m. 
Eight and a half hours later, Martin was awakened by a terrifying crash. He hurried to Smith's room and found him, his head buried in the trash can, a hole in his right temple, and the pistol still dangling from his fingertips. Smith's suicide sent Remus down a dark well of worry. Who was left to ensure he would not go to jail? It would certainly not be the Federal Court of Appeals, which, on June 30, 1923, upheld Remus's conviction. He would have to serve his time at the Federal Pen in Atlanta. Even with the appeal denied and Jess Smith dead, it wasn't over for Remus. He would file for a rehearing of his appeal. If that failed, he would appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. And if that failed, he would appeal to President Harding himself. But on the morning of August 4th, Remus picked up a copy of the Cincinnati Enquirer and read the headline, President Warren Harding Dead. The official cause of death was, quote, a stroke of apoplexy. His vice president, Calvin Coolidge, had been sworn in as the nation's 30th president. Willem Brandt and Franklin Dodge had tracked Remus's behavior as his appeal wound its way through the courts. We know he's been working his influence all up and down the line, congressmen and public officials in the state of Ohio, and clear up even to the White House itself. She needed to quash the bootlegger's hopes of reopening his case before President Coolidge could be persuaded to decide otherwise. She scrolled a piece of paper through her typewriter and began writing, the words coming faster than her fingers were able to move. I am of the emphatic opinion that no respite should be given to George Remus or any of the defendants convicted with him. George Remus and his group of co-conspirators are defiant, dangerous lawbreakers. I am reliably informed that Remus is now engaged in the distribution of illicit liquor in St. Louis. In fact, I have underway at the present time an investigation as to his activities. In all of his conspiracies, he has exhibited a rare ability to surround himself with seemingly respectable and unimportant citizens while he hides behind their operations. Mullenbrandt wasn't sure her plea would be heard, but President Coolidge surprised her. He agreed that Rima should report to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary on January 24, 1924, as originally scheduled. On that day, Rima stood before his bedroom mirror dressing to go to prison. He selected a pearl gray silk suit, his favorite bowler hat, festooned with a ribbon, and, as usual, no underwear. Remus's lawyer had prepared a power of attorney that granted Imogene control of his empire. Although he had, in a fit of anger, sought to reclaim the deed to their mansion, he was now glad it was under Imogene's name. He transferred ownership of the Fleischmann Distillery in Cincinnati and entrusted her with his various bank accounts. Also, a million dollars in whiskey certificates and all of his personal jewelry worth $125,000. Into her hand, he dropped the keys for two luxury cars. To cover her and Ruth's expenses for two years, he wrote a check for $115,000. He also set up a trust for Omola, his daughter from his first marriage, even though his affection for the girl regularly sent Imogene into an absurd and vengeful rage. At the start of their relationship, back in Chicago, she told a bellboy at the Illinois Athletic Club that she would kill Remus if he gave Romola any gifts. He kissed Imogene goodbye at the front door of the mansion, an automobile idled in the driveway waiting to take him to the federal building downtown. From there, he would catch the train to Atlanta. 
As the train rumbled into motion, Remus tried to maintain his joviality, or at least the appearance of it. He joked that his weight had climbed to 225 pounds, the heaviest he'd ever been. He said prison would help him, quote, reduce. He quipped to the accompanying reporters that this was the first protracted vacation he'd had in years. Oh well, I'm reconciled to my fate. I'll be a good soldier and serve my time. On this date, November 21st, 1927, this session of the Criminal Division of Common Pleas Court in Hamilton County will come to order. I call Henry Spilker to the stand. Do you remember when George Remus was sent to the Atlanta Penitentiary? Yes. Did you see Mrs. Remus any time after he was sent to the Atlanta Penitentiary? Yes. It was when I had charge one afternoon in a roadhouse. They called it the Delhi House. It is six miles out of Cincinnati. Who did Mrs. Remus come there with? I never saw that fellow before. He might be lighter than Remus, much younger. I let them in. It was a secret place for all the dry officials and well-to-do people. So I left them and I never said a word. I sat them in the big dining room. But before I had them seated, Miss Remus asked me if I didn't have a private room for them. They didn't like to be seen in case someone else should come in. So I took them upstairs and gave them a private room. How did you happen to come here as a witness? I read in the paper about this case, so I remember the time I saw Miss Remus in the roadhouse, and so I thought to myself, that man has made lots of money, and she ought not go out with somebody else while he is in jail. I wanted to tell people that she done something bad that she should not do, and I always figured after that that she will get in trouble sooner or later. Next time on Remus, the Mad Bootleg King. I want you to cultivate Frank the Dodge. Play up to him, because he is the last chance to help me get out of jail. Well, Daddy, I think Mr. Dodge will be able to do you some good. Frank, you're getting yourself in a hot spot. If George ever finds out that you are mixing up in company with his wife, he will shoot you. Remus, the Mad Bootleg King is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. It's hosted by me, Abbott Kaler. Chuck Reese and I wrote the show. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Our senior producer is Jessica Metzger. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Sound design and mix by Chris Childs. Elise McCoy composed original music. Additional scoring by Chris Childs. Voices in this episode provided by Ben Bolin, Lauren Vogelbaum, Julia Criscal, Noel Brown, Matt Frederick, James Morrison, Lou Carlozo, Jonathan Sleep, Joel Ruiz, Miranda Hawkins, Jay Jones, and Van Gunter. Special thanks to John Higgins from Curiosity Stream and the team at CDM Studios in New York. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give it a review in your podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity podcasts to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. 
School of Humans. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.